Matthew chapter 28. Read along with me, if you would, please, starting in verse one. Now, after the first, I'm sorry, after the Sabbath, Shabbat, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, how'd you like to be the other Mary? The other Mary came to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning. And his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered, not to the guards, by the way, and said to the women, don't be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He is risen. As he said, come. See the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I've told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. Microphone. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Pray with me, would you please? Oh, God, what a beautiful, wonderful, glorious day it is right now. And how exciting it is to know, Lord, that your name is being preached all over the world today. I mean, I wish it were every Sunday and I, I pray that it would be. There are certain places I'm confident, Lord. I thank you for the Shoreline Calvary Chapel in Morro Bay. I pray today, Lord, as they're setting up things on the beach, Lord, to preach your word to the thousands that come. Lord, please give them clarity. Lord, for Pastor Matt, Lord, in Calvary Cambria. The other Pastor Matt in Lake Victoria. And well, in the Calvary Chapel that's there in Kenya. Lord, the ministry that's taking place at Metro in D.C. The ministries, Lord, in Banam Kim in Thailand. The Philip Hayden Foundation and other ministries there in China. We pray you would be with them right now. Speak through them profoundly. For Ben and the ministry there in Arkansas. We pray you would be with them. Give them your boldness today. And here, Lord, in this room, we pray your blessing. We pray that you would profoundly develop your text in a way that we could understand. Color in the black and white, Lord. Let us get it. Captivate us in your word and draw us in in such a deep and profound and beautiful way that all we could say is, wow, and get back to that state of wonder and that power that comes at your resurrection and the fresh appreciation for what you've done for us. So, Lord, for those who are familiar, refresh us. 
for those who may not be familiar, instruct, but it's but save God. Do more. Save today. Develop. Enrich. Edify. Do all that you intend to do. And on this resurrection day, may we say, thank you for not staying dead. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. That's the point here. Let's sort of set the tone for this particular moment in time. Jesus had already prophesied personally at least thrice up to this point of his death and resurrection in explicit detail. In Mark chapter 8, by the way, which would be the next book of the Bible if you'd like to look with me. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus is up in Caesarea Philippi. He's asked his boys, who do men say that I am? And then ultimately, who do you say that I am? Peter will respond, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, in a simple sense, says, Peter, you finally have your spiritual radar on. He says, well, you can't get the Messiah without the message. And he says then, he began to teach them, this is verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke this word openly, and then, of course, Peter will turn him aside, take him aside, and begin to rebuke him. So the first time, at least in the Gospel of Mark, where it's clear and explicit, he gets rebuke from one of his guys. And, of course, it's the great response, because Peter, of course, who had just, in essence, been called Rocky, turns to Jesus and says, Don't worry, Lord, you got me. We're good. You can see Jesus going, well, that's a relief. And if you have to protect and save your God, defend your God, you got the right one. You got the wrong one. Sorry. Whoa. In the following chapter, Mark chapter 9, take a look at that with me. Jesus is now in Galilee. And by verse 31, Jesus has been teaching and he says, For he taught his disciples and he said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this thing and they were afraid to ask him. And then we, the next thing that happens is they're arguing over who would be greatest. So the first time Jesus tells them, I'm going to die, be tortured to death, and then rise again, their response, Peter says, no, that's never going to happen. I'll take care of it. The second time Jesus says, I'm going to be tortured to death and rise again, his disciples don't get it either. And then they start to respond with, so who's greatest in the kingdom of God? Which, of course, is a ridiculous question to ask Jesus, who who is greatest in the kingdom of God, by the way. And now Jesus starts to head to Jerusalem. Look at Mark chapter 10, the following chapter, verse 33. Jesus is now on the road from Galilee to Jerusalem on his way down to the feast. And he says this, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed by the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, scourge him, and spit on him, and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Interesting. The next thing we'll find is that James and John come up and ask if they could be at Jesus' right and left hand when he enters his kingdom. In all three cases, Jesus has laid out the perfect sacrifice for man and the response, well, is the selfish desire of men in return. 
If you go to Matthew, go turn back to Matthew chapter 27. I want you to realize, though his disciples didn't seem to get it, his enemies did. In Matthew 27, verse 62, we read this. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, how the deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb must be secure until the third day, lest his disciples come at night and steal him away and say to the people, He's risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate said, You have your guard. The word for guard, by the way, is the word custodia, like custodian. Go your way and make it secure as you know how. And they went and made the tomb secure, setting a seal and setting a guard. What that tells us is that the religious leaders, Jesus' opponents, were very clear on the fact that Jesus said he would rise again, which tells us that just Jesus sitting alone with his boys telling him is one thing, but it seems like everybody had been told. When Hosea, the last king of the Judean Empire, is deposed... Jerusalem destroyed in 586 B.C. Take the third and by the Babylonian Empire. They kill his boys in front of him, his sons, and then burn out his eyes. So that the last thing he will see will be the death of his children. And there's something about that last moment that you have to review over and over and over and over again. Because there's nothing you can do. There's nothing left to see. I might I suggest to you, that's what we're sort of seeing here with the gals, is that the last thing they saw was Jesus crucified, and then they were on a mandatory, mandatory Sabbath, Shabbat. He was killed in front of them just like he had promised. And as he was killed just like he had promised, they have a whole day to do nothing but think about it. Now, ladies, I'd like you to consider the fact that in the Middle East, even to this day, and we'd like to think some things may have progressed in regards to women's rights to some degree in the Middle East. Could you imagine a religious book that speaks about women being the first to encounter Jesus? Could you imagine a book that would actually be written that would speak of men's failures and defeats, like Peter's boast that he was willing to die for Christ, but then to deny him thrice? Could you imagine such a book at a time where it stands in open affront to all of the things that silence women here? Jesus has an appointment with some gals. In John chapter 19, verse 39, at Jesus' death, we read Nicodemus, who who was the first who came to Jesus by night and also came mixing with Joseph of Arimathea, bringing a mixture of aloes and myrrh. Myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. And they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen and spices, as was the custom of the Jews to bury. And they laid him in a fresh tomb that was nearby, in a garden. The Jewish burial custom allows for you to anoint a dead body for seven days, excluding the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, you can't go near it. And, and, and understand the idea is quite simple. We might look at it kind of as mummifying without removing the innards. But the idea was this was in respect for the dead. 
what the Joseph and Mary Arimathea and Nicodemus are bringing at Jesus's death was extremely costly. It was somewhere beyond a year's wage by the time everything was put together. But for a wealthy guy like Joseph of Arimathea, that might be a different story. But for these gals. Notice in this particular account that the focus is on two gals. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. If we were to look at the other particular texts, for what it's worth, and again, each one of them, same events, but different camera angles, if you will, different directors sort of running things through. I'd like you to consider the fact that in Mark's case, we'll add Salome, who was also there. We read in Luke, it was certain women. John, the focus will be on Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James. But here, God wants to make sure that you see that there are two clear witnesses. That's really important, by the way, because God makes very clear, both in the books of Exodus and in Deuteronomy, that no matter can be established without a second witness. Nobody could be put to death or freed from that without, in essence, without two proper witnesses. And now we have two proper witnesses. We have two women, by the way, who are running to the tomb while it's still dark because they'd rather be with their dead Lord than with a living world around them. And they couldn't wait. As soon as it was legal for them to be out, they were in. As soon as the Sabbath was over, we read in verse 1. As the first day began to dawn, Mary and the other Magdalene, I'm sorry, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. We do know this about Mary Magdalene from Mark chapter 16, verse 9, that Mary Magdalene was in a horrible shape when Jesus had gotten a hold of her. We read out of her, Jesus had cast seven demons. In the account in Mark chapter 16, we read that they themselves had brought spices. They had prepared for the purpose of anointing the body as well. But by verse 3, they say, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? And we read then, verse 4, that it was very large. Roughly, as we look at the mouth of a tomb of that sort, somewhere roughly between 10 and 25 tons. Now, you would like to think that would be kind of a crucial element to working this whole thing through. The girls are dragging with them now roughly their body weight and anointing. But could you imagine getting all the way there and then realizing you couldn't even get into the tomb? They're so driven to want to be with Jesus that those kind of details become less important than the acts of love that they seem to be offering. It seems to me that they're unaware of the seal, they're unaware of the guards, so those things are going to be quite the discovery as they get up to the top of that part. And we read in verse 2, behold. Now the word behold in its simplest sense means stop everything and watch this. Sometimes God will do that because he's trying to make an important doctrinal point. Sometimes I kind of get the idea that God just says stop everything and pay attention to this because he thinks it's a really cool moment and he's kind of rubbing his hands and going, I think you're going to really like this. Check this out. Now from where I usually come, where I used to come from, I kind of get that. Yo, 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 check this out. Peep this. There was a great earthquake. Now, notice he doesn't just say there was an earthquake, but a great one. Megas is the word in the Greek. Big, big earthquake. This is, by the way, not the first earthquake, even recently, 
Because I know that in chapter 27 of Matthew, that when the centurion watches Jesus die, a great earthquake takes place then, too. So Jesus, if you will, sort of enters or exits life with a great earthquake, and then, if you will, comes back with one as well. Have you ever wondered when it was that all of a sudden, somewhere, Jesus kind of comes back and says, let's do this thing? Somewhere in that, the centurion looks at Jesus' death, sees the earthquake, rocks split, and as that happens, he looks and goes, well, truly, this really was a righteous guy. This was the Son of God. And now there's another earthquake, and now there's a difference, because this time it's not just a centurion, but it's a Roman guard. Now, let me kind of give you a kind of a feel for what we're looking at here. Now, understand, Rome lived off of their intensity, their bullying, if you will, fear. They ruled by it. The idea of an iron fist was actually sort of, if you will, sort of the modus operandum for the Romans. That was why they crucified people openly. It was great preventative medicine, if you will, and it made clear the authority and the dominion and the, the, the way that Rome owned you, which makes it so insane to me when people that were there, that were among the, among the Jewish people said, we've never been slaved to anyone. You think you were birthed in slavery and now you're under the thumb of Rome. They didn't have a problem torturing you and you had no rights if you weren't Roman. They could go into your house, sleep in your bed. You had no right. They could eat all your food. They could demand at any moment you carry all of their gear, roughly about 125 pounds, if you will, roughly about nine stone. They could demand it, and you would have to go a mile. That's for which, of course, Jesus would say, if someone demands you to go a mile with them, go with them too. Because you could imagine a Roman telling you that, and you're carrying this stuff. And you're like, well, how about I go another mile with you? And you could imagine the Roman going, why? Well, because I thought we might want to talk. It's amazing how that extra mile is usually the place where the ministry really begins. Because the place that's expected of you as a friend, or expected of you, and for whatever reason you, someone feels you're entitled, well, well, that part usually there's not a lot of a, of a listening ear. But by this point, when you're going that extra mile, that's another story. They could actually have rights to all of the women in the house, and you had no say of it. You had no legal recourse. You couldn't guard your wife, or they could kill you, or your children. That was the way that Rome ran. And among them, the people that are on the outside were the ones, the ones that faced the public the most, were the ones that had to be the most intimidating, for good purpose. Because if you could make them the scariest, well then certainly you wouldn't mess with the rest of Rome. And a Roman guard was set for the purpose of making sure you knew that Rome was in control. But this had to seem like the cushiest job of all of them. You were guarding a dead guy. Well, actually, not the case. According to the Matthew text, remember, the idea was you were not guarding a tomb from the uh, the dead guy inside. You were guarding it from a bunch of ragtag Galileans that were kind of known as Duck Dynasty kind of guys would be the idea here. With their kind of long beards and, you know, like, you know, squirrel brains make you smarter. I mean, that's kind of the guys you're talking about. And it's like you're standing there and you just know these aren't going to be guys who are going to come at you with, like, contemporary weapons. They're going to come at you with, like, a pitchfork. You know, like, yeah, we got a chainsaw coming after. I mean, that's kind of the idea here. So they're kind of guarding four guys at a time, three hour shifts. And the idea of it's quite simple. If you started to fall asleep on the job, they were very serious about it. So much so that if you lost the whatever it was that you were guarding, whatever had the seal, if that seal was broken, they would not only kill you, they would not only kill your family, they would kill everybody in the city you came from. That's a pretty serious thing. Rome wanted you to know they were in control. As a matter of fact, Jesus actually pulls on that when we read in the book of Revelation where it talks about watching 
to keep your clothing. He says, let us be watchful and therefore keep our clothing. And you go, what in the world? You see, if I was sort of on guard and I was there with Lennon, I was there with Juan and I was there with David. David's certainly not going to sleep. He's a good soldier. But, the three, you know, the four of us were on our watch. We had three hours. And all of a sudden, Juan starts to get tired. He said, notice, yeah, there you are. Yeah, no, 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 because I have to be the one that does. Anyway, so listen. So as he starts to nod off, I can't have him sleeping because if we find one guy sleeping, we all get executed. So what do I do to keep him awake? I take one of those torches and I set his clothing on fire because, you know, I had those cute little skirts. Hey, I tell you what, get the hem of that thing on fire. That boy is not sleeping. And that's why Jesus says, let us be watchful and therefore keep our clothing. There's kind of the idea. So, so understand, you've got a group of guys here that have to, they're, they're probably, they're the only guys probably in the community that are probably over six feet tall. The average height of a Jewish guy at that point was about five and a half feet tall. And so you have guys that are kind of towering over others that were kind of known for being big, known for being rough, known for being sort of incourteous and they didn't really care. And if they made you bloody, it was probably a good day for them. And these are the guys that you're seeing. There's three or four of these guys kind of when they cross arms and lock, it's a pretty big wall. And what I love about this is that while John, for instance, will emphasize that there are two uh, two angels, ultimately, the one will be at the foot and one at the head, which, of course, is an entirely different matter. Here we, we see the focus on one particular angel, and it only takes one angel to actually make all four of them faint like little fairy girls. And you see these guys, and they're talking like this, and they're just ready to take it on. And the angel, and it, notice how nonchalant the text is, because there's something beautiful about it. It doesn't say God had to work, muster up anything. He had to kind of make the heavens part and make the, and all this kind of stuff happening, and the ground. Well, the ground did shake, but it says for. Notice the word for there. For, ati means because. So in other words, it says the ground shook because an angel came down. What? I don't get it either. I know somehow God said, take the lift, the elevator lift, the, the, the earthquake lift. And so he kind of takes this thing. And as he comes down, the ground starts to shake. And you have these four guys trying to stand all tough. And they start to shake. And this angel just nonchalantly rolls away a 12, 15, 20 ton stone. And then we read he just sits on it. And that was enough. We don't read anywhere that he went like that or opened his wings or something and threw darts or any of that stuff that someone might do in Hollywood right now where all of a sudden it's like a ninja angel. He was just an angel. And we read two things about this guy, notice. One is that his clothing was pure and the other is that he radiated light. The two things he was known for was the glory that he reflected and the purity that he carried. I think, what a beautiful messenger. Oh, that God would make us such people. I wonder if, you know, it's like, think about all the other angels. We have a choir of angels, if you remember, at Jesus' birth. And you think they've been rehearsing, they've been working on their song, and then the curtain opens and it's like a few shepherds. And you're like, are you kidding me? This is what I get. Glory to God in the highest. Yeah. And, and then you go, but then you get this other guy and it's like, hey, I, 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 need, a, I need an angel. You, well, well, what's my job? Oh, no. Do I have to go talk to some girl and tell her she's going to be pregnant? No, 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 no. To show up and freak out a bunch of guards. Which one of us guys would not volunteer to be that one? He's like, and look, at, and I don't want you to do anything crazy. Just show up and roll off a stone and sit on it. And I love the fact that God doesn't have to do anything to make his, get his work done. You know what I mean? There's no, like, great... The word difficult is just not in God's vocabulary here. And he's like, this is going to be really rough. These guys are really tough, and they've seen some pretty rough things. They've beheaded a lot of people. They've gutted people. 
He's like, just roll away the stone and sit on it. Listen to that. Just roll away the stone and sit down for a moment. Now understand, we need to get clear why the stone was rolled away. The stone was not rolled away to get Jesus out. What we're going to find is Jesus didn't have a problem walking through walls. What that tells me is the stone wasn't rolled away to get Jesus out. The stone was rolled away to get the girls in. And there's the point. Is that somewhere there was a dead person. A dead person. Decaying, rotting. That would be the idea of a dead person. Jesus has been familiar with him. He had a close personal friend that after four days was instructed by the girls. By now he stinketh. He knows death. But that, 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 that person isn't there anymore. Oh, the things that were with it, oh, there may be traces. But the dead guy isn't there anymore. I do love the fact that somewhere in all of this, the angel is going to, and, and if you look at it in the text, it appears almost simultaneous. The girls are showing up. They're trying to figure out how to roll away a stone. They're dragging all of this, this liquid with them, this aloe goo with cinnamon and such. And as they're dragging this up the hill, there's an angel freaking out a bunch of soldiers who pass out. It says they became like dead men. Do you think the girls saw that? I don't know. Ladies, would you have wanted to see that? Would you have wanted to see those guys drop like that? Because then after that, he actually turns and he speaks to them. Now, this is the angel, and his response is an interesting one, because he actually kind of sits down and he says, look it, don't, don't be afraid. Which tells me that somehow maybe they would have been afraid. I mean, it isn't like, why would you mince those kind of words? And he's like, look it, don't be afraid. I know what you're looking for. What you're looking for is Jesus. I'm aware of that. He's not here. But I'd like you to come in and see where the dead guy used to be. And this is, by the way, you see Jesus who was crucified. Did you notice that? So I want you to come in and take a look. Come in. I'm, I'm going to roll away this stone. Listen, I'm going to roll away this stone, and then I'm just going to sit down, and then we're just going to talk. I'd like to invite you in to take a look for yourself. Now, notice the angel doesn't go, see, 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 look at these clothing, and look at this thing, and how he must have popped out of this, because if it was like wrapped, but, you know, because of Joseph of Arimathea, it must have looked like a cocoon, and how did Jesus get through that, and why would they strip a body if they stole it? He doesn't, he doesn't have to go through all of that. He's not defending it, he's not bringing up dusty books or trying to, do, to describe or explain or apologize, any of this stuff. He's like, let me invite you into the tomb where a dead guy was, because it's going to become a cathedral soon. I'd like you to come in and take a look. Can I just say that as God calls every believer to ministry, could you let that be your first step? Instead of trying to argue, instead of trying to pound, could you just invite people, roll away the stone, and then invite people to take a look where a dead guy used to be? Scripture says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were born spiritually dead. And to be honest, what does spiritual death look like? We rot. We decay. It's dark. It's empty. There's no relationship. And that's exactly the point. Beloved, please hear me. Before this point, before I knew Jesus, I hated people. Genuinely hated them. When someone would ask, hey, if you lived on a deserted island and you could have one thing, what would you have? And I'd say, a fence. 
And that was kind of where I came from. And for the Lord to say, look, I'm going to call you to ministry. It's such a revolutionary different place. I'm like, let me invite you to take a look at what was but isn't anymore. That, But it's not just vacant because that's only the first part of that. And what the angel says is, go ahead and take a look. But I want you to go tell people. I want you to go tell Jesus' students. That's all a disciple is. Mathitikos. It's just a student. And in all of that, they start to head out. But that's not the end of the story. Because Jesus knows there's one more thing before they're going to go and talk to these boys. Look at it with me. In our text, it says this. And by the way, we're almost done. It tells us as well now. It says, go quickly. Verse 7. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And indeed, he's going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. And he says, behold, I have told you. In other words, it's like, okay, I've done my job. Can we agree? Are you satisfied with your service? So it says then in verse 8, they went out quickly from the tomb. Did you notice that it says they went out from the tomb? So where must they have been? Inside the tomb, or you wouldn't go out of it, right? Does that make sense? The angel, I remind you, was the angel in the tomb? Where was he? He was on a rock on the outside of the tomb. Go on in. Take a look. Be my guest. But what if they find traces of that old dead person? Well, there might be some clothes laying there. But the dead guy isn't there. So, they went out quickly. But notice they also went out quickly. Remember he said, don't be afraid. Fobeho, like phobia. Same word that's used here in its own conjugation. It says, and they went out quickly from the tomb with fear. They were still afraid, but also with great joy. Jesus had promised that he was going away, but when he would rise again, when he would come before them, they would have a joy. Listen, listen, listen. Behold this. He would give you a joy that no one could take. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you have an untakeable joy. Don't tell me how Satan stole your joy. If you don't have it, you gave it away. Because Jesus promised he gave you a joy no one could take. And if no one means no one, then no one means no one. So they went out quickly. They're freaked out. That's the idea. They're totally afraid and totally joyful. There's a weird emotion or two. Verse 9. But as they went to tell his disciples, notice the next word. What is it in verse 9? As, notice what it says. As they went to tell his disciples, then what's the next word? Behold. Remember that? Here's our second behold in this. He's like, behold. I mean, there's the guard standing there. There's the seal. You know, there's the stone. The women are on the way. God goes, check this out. And the angel comes down, an earthquake. And he's like, hey. Ah, they all fall over. And then he goes, I tell the girls, hey, don't be afraid. Um, I, I roll this away for you. Go ahead and take a look inside. I know who you're looking for. He's not there. And now I want you to go and tell everyone. Go tell his disciples he's risen. So the women are freaked out. They're excited. And they start to leave. But now he says, yeah, you think that was amazing? Check this out. Verse 9. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them. You see, this is the difference of everything. It's not just... That we've seen an empty tomb or that our lives have become a little better. Jesus was not a DIY life improvement program. 
I haven't met religion. I haven't met a politic. I haven't succumbed to a protocol. I've met Jesus. And this separates him from every other human being on the planet. See, we have this terrible habit of dying and staying dead. It tells us in Scripture, it is appointed unto man once to die and then to judgment. There's no reincarnation according to Scripture. You got one chance, this is it. Here's the good news. You have a chance. You know, I want more chances. Well, what gives us the right to demand any? And these women, these women ladies, not men, not scholars, a couple gals that love their Savior, are running out because they saw an empty tomb and Jesus has a little appointment with them. His response, notice by the way here in verse 9, is rejoice. That's his first word. The angel said, don't be afraid. They were afraid. Jesus says, rejoice. And they came They held him by the feet and they worshipped him. Can there be any other logical response than that? And then he tells them, don't be afraid. Now go and tell him. Now see the difference. If what you're trying to testify to a world that needs to know that Jesus is different from everything else, and what you're just going to tell them, and I think it's a good place to start, is go ahead and take a look inside, but now let me take a look at things from a different perspective. It's really not empty anymore. See, I've got a new landlord. And the new landlord is the king of kings and the lord of lords that's conquered death, sin, shame, filth, and the grave. And he lives inside of me now. I invite you, see, when you start to see the things that used to be there in their death, darkness, and decay, and they are gone, you're going to have to see why I'd like you to meet the one who has changed that. And that's not a church, that's not a denomination, that's not a protocol, that is a person named Jesus the Christ. Listen, this is the point, is that this whole resurrection story is so fundamental that it changes its the, not a, but the game changer. It tells us, by the way, in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 22, that when Peter knows there needed to be a replacement for number 12, he must be a witness of the resurrection. In chapter 4, verse 2, they preached the resurrection. In chapter 4, verse 33, they gave witness to the resurrection. Paul later, as he is converted in chapter 17, verse 18, in Athens, preaches the resurrection. And in verse 18, the philosophers tripped over the fact that there was a resurrection. It tells us in Romans chapter 1, listen, 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 behold, chapter 1, Romans, verse 4, it says that Jesus the Christ was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection. So when someone says, I don't believe that God had a son, I'd say, well, if God had a son, he'd raise from the dead. Don't you agree? Well, he did raise from the the dead to prove he was the son of God. It tells us, by the way, that if we were to follow in seeing that death of who we were, we would would experience, as Paul craved to in Philippians chapter 3, the power of that resurrection. It tells us that we've been begotten again to a living hope through that resurrection. 1 Peter 1, 3. 1 Peter 3, verse 21. It tells us that we answer a good conscience to God because of that resurrection. Because we know that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that whoever is in Christ is a new creation. And that all is proven by the fact that we have a resurrected Savior. There are other people out there trying so desperately to please God by worshiping dead people. You're aware of that, right? Some of those dead people are actually in tombs, in churches, where they're bowing to them like they're going to hear. 
There are other people that died, and it's funny, they'll say he ascended, but you can go visit their graves somewhere, and it, you know, and, 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 and figure that one out. So you can throw a rock on the grave. Other places you can take a look at a picture of, you know, try to find a statue of a guy that they believe was really, really thin, but now he's fat and bald because that's prosperous, you know, prosperous. And, and all of that, they're, they're still dead. There's the point of it is that every one of these people are still dead. And this is what Paul says about the whole thing. Please hear me as we wrap this up. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. Listen, please hear me. If Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty. The word is kenos. It literally means worthless or irrelevant. And our faith is the same. Worthless, irrelevant. We'd be found false witnesses. Pseudomartoria. Of God, because he is, we have testified of God that he's raised up Christ, whom he didn't raise up if, in fact, the dead don't rise. By verse 16, it says, if the dead don't rise and Christ isn't risen, well, then if Christ isn't risen, then our faith is futile. The word there is the word matthias, and it means pointless or meaningless. And then he says, you're still in your sins. We are the person we used to be. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then all we have is that Jesus may have paid for the things, but we're no different. And those who have fallen asleep have perished. There's that word that means annihilated, by the way. Atalumi. And there are some within, even within the church in Mass that will tell you that when you die, you just are annihilated. You cease to exist. Paul says, are you that insane to believe that craziness? It says in verse 19, if we in this life only have, only on this life have hope of Christ, listen, it says we of all people are the most pitiful. Isn't that the way the world looks at us? The way the world looks at us is, you guys are pitiful. I, mean, I get to get drunk. I get to go have sex. I get to do crazy stuff. What do you got? Eternal life. I don't need to do drugs. It isn't like I don't do drugs because Jesus told me not to. I don't do drugs because I don't need to do drugs. I don't run around and sleep around, to be honest, because I'm completely satisfied in Christ. There's the point. All the things that I craved after were because of an emptiness in my, in my life that came from my death that was filled to overflowing by my God of life. This is if that would be the case. If we've really gone and fought against wild beasts in Ephesus really for no real purpose, why don't we eat and drink for tomorrow we die? He says, you know what? He would be the end result. Please hear me. Please hear me. He says, he would be the end result. If really Jesus isn't risen... If this was just like Jesus was a nice guy and he was a good teacher and he did miracles, but in the end he died like every other guy, okay, maybe even he was crucified. So you have a dead Savior. That's all you get? Because, you know, in the end of it all, you have a pointless, meaningless faith. It's irrelevant. And isn't that the way the world looks at us? Like we're irrelevant. And the church is trying to search for relevance in the wrong place. They're trying to search for relevance by trying to make the church more hip. If you could get a cooler pastor with a hipper worship team and a wilder and a greater, like, you know, the lasers and the smoke so you have that experience. And by the time you're done, you weren't really sure if you were at church, but you were at a great concert or whatever it was, and it was super awesome. And in the end of it all, you bought the T-shirt and you got the WWJD, you know, whatever. And it was like, yeah, and you became like a fan of that. But the world, by the way, still is going to look at our faith as worthless is irrelevant because the only way that it could be relevant is this. Is that there is a new life on the other side of the cross. The reason why people don't want to come to Jesus often is all they see is the cross. They don't see the empty tomb. See, at the cross, it says, I think I have to give these things up, right? 
Why would I want to give these things up? Because you don't know the life on the other side. That's the point. You're like, hey, look at So you lay this. Nothing that I've ever given to God has not been traded for something better. But God is not a God of nots. He's a God of instead ofs. He says, you know what? If, if Jesus is just like everybody else, then we might as well do what everyone else does and just live for the day. You know what? Let's just, let's just party like everybody else. Let's just do whatever. What difference does it make? We're not accountable to anyone anyways. He's just dead like everybody else. That, if the church adopts that, and let's be honest, that like gangrene has been inserted into the body of Christ in mass in many places. And I'm not like us against them. The point is, we are part of that body, and I'm praying with my heart that we could make a difference. But that difference has to be that what we want is more than just a get-out-of-hell-free card. And a get-out-of-hell-free card would be enough for Jesus to die at the cross. But what we really want is a new life now. So the world could see somebody different than we were before. Somebody that looks and says, you know what, I'm not going to respond like I used to. I'm going to bless those who persecute me. I'm going to do stuff that I would never have done before. Like serve you. Like seek to be selfless. To not make it about me. But to love you the way that Christ called me to. Stuff that the rest of the world's going to scratch your head and go, what in the world are you doing? And you're like, I don't even know. God's just doing it through me. I don't even know. And if we could become, if we could embrace that, could you imagine what would happen even here today? It would be more than just, well, I accepted Jesus as my Savior because he died on the cross. Look, at that's half the story. Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sin and mine. But just like Scripture promised, he rose again from the grave on the third day to offer us a new life. So you could lay down that emptiness and that death you're carrying around, that vacancy and that darkness and that fear and that overwhelmedness, all of that stuff that comes with death. You could lay it all down and watch him give you a brand new life. It says in the book of Proverbs that to the starving soul, even the most bitter thing is sweet. But the satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb. It's like you get so full, you're like, I can't even have my favorite dessert right now. We had that a couple days ago. And the beautiful thing here, beloved, is God wants you more than just fed. He wants you overflowing. So that you could dump that hope, that life, that light, that love on anybody you bounce onto, stranger or friend alike. But for that to happen, this has to be more than just Jesus died for me, so let's get rid of that old nasty guy that's going to hell. There's a whole new life. Jesus didn't just say, think of me. He said, follow me. And that means we've got to walk. So hear me as we go to prayer. In this text, the response by these gals was to fall at Jesus' feet and worship him. In the end of it all, the idea of falling at the feet, by the way, was, was so much more than just freaking out like the soldiers. They kind of fell too. But to fall at someone's feet is to surrender. There's the point. Interesting, the word worship in the Greek is the word pros, it, it's proskuneo. Pros means towards, kuneo means to kiss, like a dog does its master's hand. Interesting, the idea of worship from a Greek perspective is actually the pouring forth of a desire of intimacy toward another, underneath them. And can I say that today, there are only two kinds of people in this room right now, and I'd like us all to walk out of here the same. And as those who have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, not just as Savior, but as Lord, falling at his feet, if you will, and saying, I'm yours, I want to follow you. 
Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ to follow him? Or are you just banking that a prayer is good enough to get you out of of hell and that's enough? Man, if that's the case, you are missing the life. I accepted Jesus when I was 19. I won't even tell you how many years ago that was. But I will say this. I have never for a second ever looked back and gone, oh, the good old days. The life he has given me is so far beyond anything. So far beyond anything I could have imagined. I would not have thought it possible had it not been true. Have you accepted that gift of Jesus? I'm going to give you that opportunity. If you have, my prayer today is that God would invite us to become the witness, like the the messenger, like the angel that says, first of all, be welcome to inspect. You're not going to find perfection here in practice, but you are going to find that the dead guy that's there isn't there anymore. And then I would like to invite you to meet my Savior, my Lord, my love. You ever wonder what the girls ever did with all of that liquid? I guess they didn't really care at that point, did they? It was for anointing dead, and there was no one dead there. They might have wanted to anoint the guards by that point. And here's my question again. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus? If you have, are you willing to be used by God to let God do the work of rolling away that heart of stone and showing the world what he's done in you? Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful text, for what you've shown us in your word. I thank you, Lord, for the way you've profoundly, Lord, spoken to my heart through this time. And my heart is hungry, Lord, to see you do a revolution in our lives today. We recognize the revolution isn't going to happen because we've just sort of joined a church, because we've decided to start reading or praying. But, Lord, there is a God who would rather die than live without us. And my heart's desire for every one of us is that we would see that. And Lord, I pray on this Easter 2015 that today, Lord, we would recognize your call to follow you. That this isn't a come to my house once a year and we'll hang out. But let me be the part of it. Let me be the life that you've craved. I pray, Lord, for every person here who may be struggling, Lord, with what they think they may be giving up. Would you just right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, the one who does the conviction, the conviction, the convicting and convincing, that you would show them, Lord, that everything they lay down, you've got better for them. And I pray for every Christian here that's been so fearful of, of being bold, by the power of your Holy Spirit, overcome us today. That we would be the people you call us to be, to be witnesses that we've met Jesus in no delusional manner, but proper. So here in this room, within the sound of this voice, if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, and today you want to accept that gift, today knowing that that is the payment for our guilt as he died for our sins at the cross, just like Scripture promised, was buried and just like Scripture promised, rose again on the third day. Today, if you would like to receive the gift of Jesus Christ and follow him, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to give a pronounced, resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. 
Let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God, in heaven I'm a sinner. And I recognize, Lord, that you as a righteous judge will punish all sin, but you've punished my sin on the cross of your Son, Jesus the Christ, who died for me so that all my sin could be properly punished. And just like Scripture promised, rose again so that I could have a new life, no longer under the tyranny of that sin. And so I say yes. I say yes to that gift, confessing Jesus as my Savior at the cross and Lord at his resurrection. I may not understand everything, but I know this much. If you want to wash me clean, I'd be a fool to say no. If you want to take my life and make it beautiful, make it your cathedral, oh, I, the only right thing to do is to say yes. So I say yes. Be my Lord and Savior, Jesus. Have me now. I surrender my life to you. In your name. If you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. And today, Lord, in this room, for every person here who has made that confession, I pray you would cement within them a hunger for your word. Show them the beauty of fellowship and prayer. And draw them, Lord, to that place where they could find a, where they could be a part of a body and learn how to be to function in a community of people that love you. Oh Lord, you are the great orchestrator. You can make all that happen. But may we never move away from the beauty of the gift you've given us at the cross and the power you've shown at the empty tomb. So, Lord, make us the witnesses you call us to be now. Where we would see, Lord, you've cleaned out that tomb and made it a cathedral. Jesus, thank you for being alive and living inside of us. Radiate through us now your glory and purity. In your name. Amen.